You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle, the writer and presenter of the epic 12-part series, The Cold War, What We Saw which tells the story of the titanic 20th century struggle between two competing ideologies from its infancy at the end of World War II all the way to its conclusion with the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the Soviet Union itself. You'll transport back in time, feel what it was like to live through the end of the Cold War, and understand why that struggle was a battle for civilization itself. I thought you might enjoy a sneak peek of what's to come, followed by an interview with the man who wrote Ronald Reagan's famous Tear Down This Wall speech. I'm talking, of course, about Peter Robinson. Make sure to subscribe to this channel so you don't miss any episodes. And come back here January 31st for the full release of Episode 1. You certainly won't want to miss it. 30 years ago, the Berlin Wall was torn down by the people that it had divided for three decades. Berliners were euphoric, they were euphoric because the Berlin Wall was not merely a wall between East and West Berlin, it was the wall between East and West, period. It was the division of humanity into two different camps, and since names and labels are always changing and morphing, not to mention carrying decades of emotional baggage, let's reduce it to the most simple, emotionally neutral terms. On one side of the wall, the Eastern side, were the collectivists, who believed that society takes precedent over the person. This collectivism was advertised as new and scientific, but the fact is that collectivism has been the default condition of humanity since humanity began. No, the actual newcomer to this clash of visions were the individualists on the Western side. The first government in history dedicated to the idea of the individual being more worthy of protection than the state had just turned 170 years old when the 40-year conflict known as the Cold War began. With the world in ruins after the defeat of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and Fascist Italy, these two ideologies had come into head-on conflict here in Berlin. It quickly became evident that Soviet leaders were not interested in a free, unified Germany and were determined to induce or force the Western powers to leave Berlin. Certainly, the American and Western people do not want war. But all history has taught us the grim lesson that no nation has ever been successful in avoiding the terrors of war by refusing to defend its rights, by attempting to placate aggression. From the East, the collectivist idea known as communism had slugged its way for mile after bloody mile, limping, then striding, and then running across Eastern Europe from the Nazi high watermark at Stalingrad. The individualist ideology arrived by sea, storming ashore on the beaches of Normandy, and after being staggered once or twice, was racing across Western Europe in a gasoline-fueled Red Ball Express. Now, part of this idea was known as capitalism, but that was merely the economic system. Politically, morally, economically, and practically, these were called the forces of freedom for the simple reason that that's what they were. And as the collectivist nightmare known as German National Socialism wavered, collapsed, and then imploded, these two antithetical ideologies met in Berlin, for it was in Berlin 
where one world war had just ended, that the next world war was about to begin. Now, no one felt this divide more than the defeated Germans themselves. To them, the wall, this war of ideologies, had an immediacy not felt anywhere else. The nation and former capital, Berlin, split in half, one camp occupied by the armies of the Soviet Union and the others by the armies of the United States, Great Britain, and in a rather generous gesture, France. There was nothing theoretical about the Berlin Wall. It was cold, thick, high, and deadly, and it was a daily reminder to those on both sides of the sheer monumental luck the city block you lived on determining the fate of you, your children, and their children. No wonder they went at it with hammers and crowbars and even bare and bloody hands. But all of us who watched it happen felt that giddy, euphoric, mind-boggling sensation that had nothing to do with living in Berlin or even in Germany. Our top story. The Iron Curtain between East Germany and West Berlin has come tumbling down. This has been a city physically divided for 28 years, but now it's come together, East and West, in a spontaneous outburst of emotion. We all cried when the wall came down, because with it collapsed from our shoulders the death sentence that we'd all been living under. Because you cannot possibly understand how the world could be locked in a life and death struggle for half a century unless you can put yourself in the position of those of us who lived through it or lived through any part of it. You see, when the Berlin Wall fell, it began to dawn on me like it began to dawn on all of us. There was going to be an actual future, and despite all odds, we were gonna to live to see it. And this is what we saw. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. Iron Curtain has descended across the country. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive. Communism must be a system of international control and conformity. You and I have a rendezvous with death. Never give in. Never, never, never. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, many times a day I get asked, Bill, you suave and handsome devil, how is it that you know so much about everything? And the answer is very simple. I have a very high level of confidence and a very low level of awareness. But there's some good news. I had to spend 25 years poking around trying to get all this stuff together, and mostly I just pretty much fake it, but you won't have to. There's a streaming service out called The Great Courses Plus. What it is is a bunch of unique perspectives from engaging experts in their fields on a wide range of topics. You know, there's subjects like American presidents. You can get one on exoplanets or travel photography, stress relief. And with The Great Courses, you have the flexibility to watch them or just listen to them just about anywhere. Now, just as one example, they've got a featured course out now called The Skeptic's Guide to American History. History. And if you've seen what they've been doing to history in the public sector out there, it's about time somebody asked questions like, was the Cold War inevitable? Yes. And you can get all kinds of in-depth, objective understanding about the past and how it still affects us today. Now, right now, they've got a special offer. You can get that awesome feeling of pride that I often feel, but you'll actually have earned yours. If you sign up for The Great Courses Plus, they're offering my listeners this amazing deal. It's three months of unlimited access for just $30. That's $10 a month. But it's a limited time offer, so you're going to have to sign up today using my special URL. Get all the details at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash cold. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash cold. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle, and this is a very special segment of The Cold War, What We Saw. We've been doing this series as a 10-part history lesson, and it's nice to take a little break from the history lesson 
and talk to somebody who actually made some of the history. Peter Robinson has been doing amazing work up at the Hoover Institute. He hosts Uncommon Knowledge on National Review Online. It's a remarkable show. Uh, so had many, many different aspects of his background are fascinating, but probably the one he's best known for is that he actually wrote the words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall that Ronald Reagan uttered that really seemed to mark the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union. So, Peter, it's such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much for being with us. Bill, that was such a generous introduction that I'm a little worried there's no place for me to go but down, but I'll do my best. <laughs> no, you don't have to worry about that. I'll cover, I'll cover the lowering of the bar. Um, <laughs> so let's just start with something to warm us up here, and, and this may be something you can relate to. So I'd like to start off by kind of full disclosure kind of thing. I was 28 years old when Reagan gave that speech that you wrote, but by that time I was already a world-renowned idiot. Uh, you attended Dartmouth and Oxford. I graduated magnum cum laude from uh, Dunning-Kruger University. Now I'm telling you all of this because when I was a young man, in real time, I was convinced that Ronald Reagan was going to get us all killed. He was just going to get us all killed, uh, mm. and and I was in the theater department. I hung around with actors, and I was passionately involved with things I knew nothing about. What do you say about that kind of thing? Did you have a similar experience? I I really didn't, to be honest, Bill. I was conservative more or less from the get-go. I caused a little bit of trouble in college as a conservative, writing conservative pieces for the student newspaper. Where that came from, I don't know. As for Ronald Reagan, you're in pretty good company. In 1983, there was an, uh, what was it? It was the nuclear freeze movement. Mm -hmm. And there was a demonstration in Central Park at which Bruce Springsteen headlined. And for years, maybe still today, I don't know, but for years, that event held the record as the largest outdoor political gathering in the history of the country. So there were a lot of people who thought what you thought, Bill, and Bruce Springsteen was one of them. So. So congratulations now on I'm the company you kept. I suppose I can put it that way. I've had a chance <laughs> to speak a few times at the Reagan Library, and no, and no fooling about this. I, I go out afterwards every time, stand by uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, burial site there, and uh, bow my head and apologize. And, and, and everything I'm doing with the work I do is to atone <laughs> for this. So, Peter, here, here's what I want to talk to you about throughout this entire sure. uh, subject. You know, we talk about the Cold War and, and you hear terms like, you know, body counts, throw weights, MIRVs, folded gaps, GIUK, all, all of this stuff. It's always talked about in terms of either weapons, policies or politics, sometimes even economics. You know, bomber gap, a missile gap. But the thing that never, ever seems to be discussed is the morality gap. It's always portrayed right. as if this was Coke versus Pepsi, you know, red team versus blue team. But one of the things I've been doing is constantly dipping into a, a thimbleful of the of the ocean of atrocities that were committed by the Soviet leadership against their own people. And no one ever seems to talk about the moral difference between these two uh, combatants. That is a very profound point. And I'm glad that you're going to include that in this history that you're doing. Uh, I once heard Anatoly Sharansky, uh, Nathan Sharansky, as he is now. Now he's a, an important figure in Israeli politics. But he was a Jewish refusenik, and he spent years in a Soviet prison. And Ronald Reagan helped to get him released. Not him personally, but he helped to get Jewish refuseniks released. 
And Anatoly Sharansky visited the White House and said to Ronald Reagan in the Oval Office that when he gave a speech, people would smuggle in on little screws or twists of paper quotations from the president's speech, and the prisoners would hand these from hand to hand to hand and read them. And it gave them hope because he was telling the truth. He wasn't engaging in calculations, big power calculations or realpolitik. When Ronald Reagan gave a speech, he told the truth. Later, I, I, I did, you were kind enough to mention my interview program, Uncommon Knowledge. I interviewed uh, Nathan Sharansky as he is now just a couple of years ago. And he said that he doesn't, to this day, no, he doesn't understand how Ronald Reagan knew it. But Reagan, he said, knew the nature of the Soviet regime, that it was effectively a gangster regime, that Ronald Reagan understood that better than any other world figure or politician of the day that Nathan Sharansky ever met. And what I, if you were a foreign policy professional or if you were a, a in the Defense Department, it was your job to worry a great deal about throw weights and multiple reentry vehicle warheads and so forth. That People had to do that. That was important. But what Reagan brought along was a kind of moral imagination. You've already explained the moral aspect. Our society had, had, has many, many faults. But if you compare our society with the Soviet society, it was perfectly clear that one was fundamentally good, trying to live up to its own ideals, and the other was, to use the phrase that President Reagan used in 1983 was when he gave this speech, the other was an evil empire. It really was, at its most basic level, a contest between good and evil. He saw that and was willing to say that. That's the moral part of Ronald Reagan's moral imagination. The imagination comes in, by the time Ronald Reagan became president, we'd had, what, 15 years, depends on how you count it, of mm -hmm. detente, coexistence, and it was considered the sophisticated, realistic point of view right. to imagine that the Soviet Union would exist essentially forever. Therefore, we had to be adult about it and manage the relationship. And Ronald Reagan could imagine a different script. He told Dick Allen, his first national security advisor, Dick Allen told me this, they were chatting, and this is before uh, Reagan became president, but he said, now, Dick, um, would you like to hear my view of the Cold War? Well, of course I would, uh, said Allen. Well, now, some people say I'm simplistic, but there's a difference between being simple and being simplistic. My view of the Cold War is this. We win and they lose. And at that time, that was a shocking thing to say. Ronald Reagan could imagine a world, a post-Soviet world. He could imagine a victory for the forces of good over the communists. I mean, trying to get all of your insurance in one place, it is literally worse than Stalingrad. 
Yeah, that's the world I live in out here. Look, our friends over at Gabby have made this a whole lot easier. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance because they give you apples-to-apples comparison of your current policy with 40 other top providers like Progressive or Nationwide or Travelers. All you have to do is link your current insurance account, and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. That's what I did. I put in my insurance policy. I got all kinds of options back, and guess what? I was paying too much money. I had to be pretty old in life before I realized that paying money that I didn't have to pay is like turning down income that I wanted. But nevertheless, that's the case. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. And if they can't find you savings like they did for me, they're going to let you know so you can relax. You have the best rate out there already. So take two minutes right now to start saving on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash cold. And for a limited time, if they can't find you savings on your insurance, you'll get a $10 Amazon gift card. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash cold. Gabby.com slash cold. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Amazon is not a sponsor of this promotion. You're so right about um, the, the uh, attitude of elitists. When, they, when you talk about things like the forces of good and forces of evil, they, they roll their eyes as if you've just you know, emerged from some barn someplace and covered with hay. But That's right. I, I cannot stress this enough. The American public is not capable of understanding how horrible the leadership of that country was. They just cannot believe it. Dutch Reagan saved lives as a lifeguard when he was growing up. Joseph Stalin, on the other hand, personally signed 40,000 death warrants. That's just the ones he signed. Khrushchev ordered his own NKVD troops to shoot down his own soldiers with machine guns, and Dwight Eisenhower at once threw a, a golf club at an aide. Beria rapes hundreds of young women, and, and Alan Dulles had a consensual affair with the Queen of Greece. The, these differences are so monumental that it took somebody with Reagan's imagination to to really at least get a a, a grasp on on just what kind of people he was dealing with. That's right. He said again. Somehow he intuited this. I, even now, I don't. He didn't. He didn't read book after book after book on Russian history, Soviet history. But somehow he knew the nature of the bad guys. And by the way, you make a very very important point. Every Soviet leader from Lenin through Chernenko, that is every Soviet leader until you get to Gorbachev, right. was a killer. Absolutely. Was personally responsible for many, many deaths. That's a, that, that distinction, it was, a, it was a country and empire that was run by effectively mafia hitmen. They were killers. Yes. And I think you could make the case that one of the reasons the Cold War lasted as long as it did was that American and Soviet histories were almost a negative image of each other. For instance, the Soviet Union mm. land power had been invaded so many times, been burned and raped and pillaged yes. through the Soviet Union so many times, that the idea of conquest and defense was so integral to their worldview that they could simply not imagine or credit the, the, the statement that the United States was not interested in taking territory or, or, or taking a bite out of Russia. Conversely, as a, as a trading nation whose history consists of, you know, our invasion history is the British came down and burned the White House. That's about it. Um, that's right. Th- we could not understand why the Soviets were as paranoid as they were about everything. We thought we were dealing with rational players. We would see things like the Berlin blockade that didn't make any sense whatsoever. Stalin already had what he wanted. Mm -hmm. But we never, ever fully understood, I think, at least until Reagan anyway, that we were looking at not a reflection of ourselves, but an inverse image of, of each other. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a great deal to that, for sure. There's a great deal to that. I remember, I should have known this, I suppose, but I remember reading up on this in the White House, and um, I grew up thinking that the biggest invasion, the biggest military event in the Second World War was the Normandy invasion. Not at all. Not at all. The biggest military actions took place inside the Soviet Union. Right. The Germans invaded the Soviet Union with more than three million troops on three different fronts, and the Soviets lost something like 20, I think the estimates, the newer estimates are even higher, something like 20 million of their citizens and soldiers in that conflict. We lost a little under half a million. Uh, it, was, it was a regime, this is one, one reason why we, we couldn't believe they would use nuclear weapons, and we now know that they had quite realistic plans. They were used to death. They were used to destruction. By the way, I said the regime is evil. You have to, I want to distinguish between the regime and the ordinary, long-suffering Russian people who went through that Second World War. One Russian in six, not just wounded or spent some time in privation, lost a home or, or spent some time hungry. One Russian in six died during that conflict. Um, so, the regime is bloody and hard-headed and used to death. They're used to death. And the poor people are long-suffering and beaten down. I ended up marrying one of those long-suffering um, Russian citizens. And, you, you married a Russian? Uh, I, I did, know yeah, that. absolutely. Yes, a photographer, a wonderful, wonderful woman, uh, Natasha. And um, early in our relationship, uh, she said, uh, well, she was speaking about Putin, but she could basically have been speaking about any of any one of these leaders. She said, Putin loves Russia. He just doesn't care about the Russian people. And and that's a real important <laughs> distinction. I'd like to I'd like to talk to you about a few specifics, if you don't mind. Um, sure. I had heard about George Kennan's long telegram. Uh, that was the telegram that Kennan sent from the Moscow of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow when asked about why the Soviets weren't going along with the World Bank and so on. And George Kennan, who was largely unknown at the time, wrote a 5,500-word telegram in response to the Treasury Department, not state, and outlined exactly how the Soviets thought, what they would, what they were positions would be, and covered so much detail that when I finished reading it, I, I wanted to read the entire telegram verbatim. Could you talk a little bit about, about Kennan's insight, not only into how the Soviets would behave, but the thing that took my breath away, Peter, was that he, he closed this tele as a telegram, closed this telegram by saying the most important thing is for us to believe in ourselves, to have self-confidence, not to become the communists that we're fighting, and, and to basically keep ourselves above all of this bloodshed. Right. That telegram represents an amazing moment in American history. It, probably best to take a step or two back. The background here is that Franklin Roosevelt is president throughout the Second World War, and for much of the Second World War, we are alive, uh, beginning with the, um, when the, well, beginning from the moment we enter the war, we are allies with the Soviet Union. Joseph Stalin is our ally. The th big three were Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of Great Britain, Joseph Stalin, the Premier of the Soviet Union, and Franklin Roosevelt, President of the United States. Harry Truman, as Vice President, listens to Roosevelt give his speeches praising the Soviets, sees our military leaders working with the Soviet military leaders. And so when, when Roosevelt dies in April of 1945, and Truman totally unexpectedly, certainly he never expected it, becomes president, 
he feels, Truman felt, we know this, this is one of the endearing things about Truman, who was a great man in my judgment. Truman feels he's a little man by comparison with this historic, gigantic figure of American history, Franklin Roosevelt, he's replacing. And all he wants to do is pursue the policies that Franklin Roosevelt set in place. What happens? The Soviets, instead of holding free elections in Eastern Europe, the way they had promised to do, the Red Army is in Eastern Europe, the Red Army stays. They hold a few elections, but they're mostly sham elections. And very quickly, communist regimes are established across Eastern Europe. And Harry Truman is watching this process thinking, something is not right here. Two large events take place to help change Truman's mind. One is that George Kennan, a diplomat who spoke Russian, was a deep student of history, a beautiful writer too, by the way, as, Absolutely. Uh, as you can tell when you read this telegram. George Kennan writes this cable and it lays out Soviet strengths, but weaknesses, and it describes, it sets out the policy of containment. The Second World War had just ended. The American people had been through depression and now a war. The idea that we would go to war with the Soviets, that was never going to happen. Kennan lays out containment. Just hold them where they are. Challenge them, challenge their system, and wait. All the internal contradictions will eventually bring it down. It may take great patience, and this is going to be a great challenge for the United States. But let's have confidence in our own system and in ourselves and do that. And he sets out in that one telegram the policy that the United States essentially continues for the next four and a half decades until 30 years ago, next month, the Berlin Wall finally falls. It was an amazingly prescient act of, of diplomacy. Harry Truman reads that. The second event was that Truman, Truman has a political problem. Truman had, here's why, in my judgment, he's a great man. First, he has to come to grips with reality, that the Soviets are not our allies, that they are not going to pursue, uh, keep in good faith the commitments that they made to Franklin Roosevelt. On the contrary, they are our adversaries. He has to realize that. That's a hard thing to do. In those days, of course, communications, intelligence, all of this was much, much harder to understand what somebody on the other side of the world really was doing and intending. And then Harry Truman had to build the political support in the nation for pursuing a Cold War. These were two very difficult things to do. Second large event, summer of, oh, let me see, 47 perhaps? I think it was the, no, no, it was summer of 46. Well, I've got the year wrong. It was one summer or the other. Harry Truman goes down to Palm Beach where he spent vacations and he says as he's leaving to Clark Clifford, one of his aides, pull together a list of all our agreements with the Soviets during the Second World War and how well the Soviets are living up to them. So Truman is still trying to get a grip on what's actually happening. Clark Clifford has a young assistant called George Elsey. George Elsey died at a very great age just a couple of years ago. I got to know him in his final years and he told me this story himself. George Elsey said to Clark Clifford, Mr. Clifford, if you just pull together a list of agreements, that isn't going to go far enough. Let me spend some time going around the government, talking to people, and pull together a more comprehensive report. And in those days, George Elsey said, the White House, the White House only knew what the Pentagon was doing when George Marshall came over to the White House and briefed them. 
the State Department ran foreign policy unless, I beg your pardon, at that point, George Marshall's Secretary of State. But the Pentagon has to inform the White House. The White House is sitting by itself trying to figure out what's happening in its own government, let alone what's happening with the Soviet Union. So George Elsie spends a couple of months interviewing key figures in the Pentagon, at the Treasury, and at the State Department. And what he discovers is that virtually every person to whom he spoke has begun to realize that the Soviets are up to no good, but believes that he himself is the only person who sees it. Everybody was seeing it, but there hadn't been any crystallization of this sense within the government. George Elsie writes a report. It goes to Harry Truman. They printed, I, George Elsie told me this, they printed, I believe, 20 copies. Copy number one was for the president. Copy number two was for uh, the uh, Clark Clifford, I believe. Copy number three, George Elsie showed me his own copy of this document when I visited him down in Irvine, California a couple of years ago. And it details what the Soviets are up to and what high American officials saw. And Harry Truman read this thing overnight and then gave a, the order for all those copies to be gathered and put in the White House safe. Because Harry Truman, having realized what was happening, now had to build political support for a Cold War and didn't want this thing leaking, causing trouble with politics before Truman himself got on top of the larger problem of swinging the country behind him. There, 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 there's story after story here, but the main point is that in, it's March, I believe, 1947, that Truman, he holds meetings with the leadership of Congress, and this is very important, Bill, to remember, in this time of political polarization in this country, in the election of 1946, Republicans recaptured both houses of Congress for the first time since 1932. And they did it in large part by running against Harry Truman. Truman now had to call these Republican leaders down to the White House, lay out what was happening, that the Soviets were establishing communist regimes across Eastern Europe, that they were placing pressure on Turkey and so forth, and come to an agreement with them he then goes and gives a speech to the nation before a joint session of Congress and lays out and announces that the United States will support the forces of democracy around the world and asks in particular for immediate aid to Greece and Turkey. And at that moment, Republicans and Harry Truman, who really, frankly, loathed each other, decided to put politics aside for the greater interest of the nation and begin, that to my mind, that speech is the moment when the Cold War begins. Before then, the Soviets are pushing and pushing and pushing. That is the moment when the United States stands up and decide and declares that it's going to push back. That Cold War begins at that moment. There are clips, you may want to include a sound clip of this in your history of the Cold War. Truman, Truman's delivery is flat he only gets a smattering of applause two or three times. You can see, you can hear, you can feel that nobody in that chamber is happy about this. As I say, the American people have been through depression and the first, Second World War, the last thing they want to do is commit themselves to another international struggle. They do it purely because they consider it their duty. You mentioned that Harry Truman was a regular guy who thought he was filling the shoes of a, of a great man. 
But one of the things about yes. Franklin Roosevelt was he was so convinced that he could finesse and flatter Joseph Stalin the way he finessed and flattered everyone else in the American system. He called him Uncle Joe and was sure. He said, basically said, I can yes. handle this guy. He hadn't a clue. Harry Truman had a much, much clearer view of what he was dealing with. And I think it's because he was a regular guy. And it seems to me that kind of yes. presages Ronald Reagan's outside of the beltway view I couldn't of, of, agree the, more. of the basics of it. I couldn't agree more. In my judgment, you may have a different view, Bill, but my, in my judgment, the two heroic figures of the Cold War are the president under whom it begins, Harry Truman, and the president who wraps it all up in the end, Ronald Reagan. And what do these two men, one is a Democrat, Harry Truman, one's a Republican, Ronald Reagan. One considered himself a liberal by the standards of the day. That's Harry Truman. Ronald Reagan is, of course, a conservative. But what do they have in common? Harry Truman never went to college. Ronald Reagan attended a small college in the Midwest. They both come from the middle of the country. Right. They know small-town America. They know Midwestern America. They know Americans who are hardworking and honest and decent. And they both know a lot of history because both men read constantly. So there, there's, you can't imagine Harry Truman or Ronald Reagan holding forth in the faculty lounge at Harvard or Yale. Just inconceivable. Both men know middle America, ordinary America, small town America. That's the America they carry in their minds. And the one thing, that's what they brought with them, but perhaps even more important was the things that they weren't bringing with them. Neither one of them had been exposed to this elitist kind of, you know, foggy bottom, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Harvard School of Government sort of idea that we're all just a bunch of swell chaps and, and, and we can all just get along. Right. They weren't, they weren't a part of that echo chamber that said, well, communism is inevitable, probably thought that communism was, was probably destined to win the thing, and we just could hold on as long as we could. They didn't have that elitist blind spot that was personified by um, Roosevelt and on through so much of the State Department. That's right. That's exactly right. The, um, there's a great, we know, for example, in, in Whitaker Chambers' book, Witness, Chambers who was a great journalist and a major figure in the 50s and 60s, but during the 30s became a communist and was a Soviet spy. I'm sure you'll go into that at other points in the podcast. And Chambers broke with the Communist Party and wrote a memoir called Witness, which was one of Ronald Reagan's favorite books. He could quote passages from Witness almost by heart. And in Witness, Whitaker Chambers writes that when he broke with the Communist Party, he did so with the conviction that he was leaving the winning side, the communist side, to join the losing side, the democratic West. He felt he had to do that, that his conscience gave him no choice, but he felt certain that the communists would win and the West would lose. Now, this is a, a brilliant, highly educated man. Contrast that with Harry Truman. There's a, a moment, as far as I know, it's only recorded in the diaries of uh, James Forrester, who was our, the, the, when the Department of War was reorganized as the Department of Defense, he was the first Secretary of Defense. And during the Berlin blockade that you just mentioned a moment ago, Bill, it's 1948, and Stalin is trying to choke off Berlin. And there's a meeting in the White House that Forrester writes about. 
And Truman goes around the table and listens to the military advice, and he hears from one figure after another that the military situation is untenable. If Stalin is going to choke off Berlin, he's going to choke off the rivers, he's going to cut off rail access to Berlin, there really isn't much we can do about it. And Truman listens to this, and then Forster writes down in his diary, the president made one statement. We stay in Berlin, period. And he did not believe we were going to lose. He didn't know how we would save West Berlin. Of course, they then put together the Berlin airlift, which is a great moment, a huge technical feat at the time. Aircraft flying 24 hours a day for nearly a year to, Berlin, to supply West Berlin, to fly over the Soviet troops and supply West Berlin with food and fuel and so forth. But at that moment, Harry Truman knew one thing. We're not going to lose. We're not going to back down. He was one tough son of a bitch. And I'll tell you about another one, Ronald Reagan. There's a wonderful moment. It's 81 or 82. It's fairly early in the administration. There's a meeting in the Roosevelt Room. Under Jimmy Carter, we had a two-track negotiating position on intermediate-range nuclear missiles. The Soviets had placed about 600 short-range missiles in Eastern Europe capable of striking Western Europe. And we didn't have any short-range missiles in Western Europe capable of striking back in Eastern Europe. And Jimmy Carter came up with a, quite a complicated negotiating policy. And Ronald Reagan scrapped that for the zero-zero policy. If the Soviets would remove all of their INFs, we would agree not to put a single one in place. And Paul Nitze, very distinguished, good man, good, a patriot, highly distinguished diplomat, Paul Nitze meets with the president. Nitze is about to fly off to Europe to negotiate with the Soviets. And Nitze says, Mr. President, I don't even know what to tell my Soviet counterpart. You're saying that if they agree to destroy an investment that has cost them hundreds of millions of rubles, we'll agree not to spend even one dollar. And Ronald Reagan replied, well, Paul, you just tell the Soviets you work for one tough son of a I want to talk about that one tough son of a because I think that a great deal of Ronald Reagan's negotiating credibility uh, towards the end of the Cold War, towards the end of his uh, second term, was generated by something that happened right at the beginning of his first term. For people who are not familiar with it, there was an air traffic controllers union called PATCO. I think it's the Professional Association of Air Traffic or something like that. Um, and these air traffic right. controllers had signed a contract when they were hired saying that they would not strike because they were in a critical industry. Well, the PATCO controllers didn't feel like they were getting enough money and they threatened that they were good, in fact going to strike. And Reagan said, if you guys go on strike, anybody who doesn't show up on work on Monday morning is going to be fired. And no one believed him. No one believed him because right. that would mean shutting down pretty much the entire air traffic system of the United States, all of it. And the Soviets were watching this, wondering how Reagan was going to back himself out of it. And when the day came and, and, and many of those controllers didn't show up, Reagan just fired them. And it meant grounding a significant portion of the American uh, civil aviation fleet, uh, we ended up bringing a lot of military controllers in, but it was it was tough going for a while. But the Soviets saw this and they said, this man is willing to make this kind of a dent in American society and the economy and, and, and to cause all of this chaos and turmoil because he said he would. That's exactly right. 1983, <clears throat> 
the Soviets, to continue that story, but th this is further to your point, Bill, NHTSA presents this zero-zero option to the Soviets, and they walk away from the negotiating table. And the president's fallback was, if the Soviets didn't agree to this position, then the United States begins putting INF missiles in Europe. And Europe, much of Western Europe, exploded. There were anti-nuclear, I, I mentioned earlier, when we began, the nuclear freeze movement in this country was huge. It was enormous in Britain and West Germany, Italy as well. And I know that because at the time I was writing speeches for Vice President George Bush, and we flew over to Europe, and he gave speeches about the importance of sticking to our NATO commitments. And we drove through a German city, and crowds jeered us and threw rocks mm -hmm. at the vice president's motorcade. The staff, I was in the staff bus, and bricks came in through the window, shattered the window. We all had to get climbed down on the floor. It was hatred, really. It was real hatred, anti-Americanism. And Ronald Reagan couldn't have done this without Margaret Thatcher and Helmut Kohl, of course. You had, but Reagan put those missiles in place. And that got the Soviet, that too got the Soviets' intention. George Schultz, my colleague here at the Hoover Institution, who's 98 years old, felt that that was a very important turning point, that, that the Reagan called the Soviets bluff, put in those missiles. And that was when George Schultz felt the Soviets finally understood just how serious he was. I'm glad you mentioned Margaret Thatcher because there was practically a once-in-history, certainly once-in-a-lifetime trio of three world leaders who had the moral clarity to, to change this equation from a military equation into a moral and a spiritual one. One was Ronald Reagan, the second was Margaret Thatcher, and the third was Pope John Paul II. You were speaking earlier about how dissidents in Russia or just regular Russian citizens would try and write down just fragments of Ronald Reagan's speeches and share them amongst each other. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit what effect does, does something like the President of the United States of America speaking to the common Soviet citizen who's been through 50, 60 years of absolute terror, what does that do right. to a population that has been so strangled of information of any kind? You have put your finger right on the central point. You used the word a moment ago, Bill, terror. And there is John Paul II in 1979. This is the year that Margaret Thatcher is elected and the year before Ronald Reagan is elected. He's named Pope and his first visit is to Poland. And essentially the whole population of the country turns out to see him during his several day, I think he spent seven or eight days in Poland. Mm -hmm. It becomes the motto of his papacy. If anybody remembers a phrase from John Paul II, this is the phrase. Be not afraid. Well, of course, that's spiritual advice. We Christians, Catholics like me, we're, we need not be afraid because we place our confidence in Christ. But it's also a political message. All they have over you is your fear. Be not afraid. The entire communist system rests on fear. And spoken to enough Poles and Russians that they saw in John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, they saw leaders in the West who understood, who saw that the system was simply a, it, it was in some basic way a terrorist organization and that the Soviet Union relied on fear. All right. Now, when Reagan gave the speech that I was associated with, that I, I drafted, the tear down this wall speech, 
That was that which was opposed by the State Department and the National Security Council. There All the a, experts. There was a big fight over that yep. speech, and the president overruled them and, just, and said, "I'm not going to give this speech." And when he says, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall," what effect does that have? A day or two after the speech, I went to the White House mess and sat down for lunch. I was the first person there. And the next person who came in, he's a good guy. Peter Rodman was his name. He was a disciple of Henry Kissinger on the National Security Council staff. But I tensed because Peter Rodman had been one of those who fought very hard to suppress that speech. The speech had this strange effect that the moment President Reagan delivered it, everybody recognized the fit, fittingness of it, that it was, that he had in some sense to say it. So the first thing Peter Rodman, who'd fought this speech for three weeks, he sat down and turned to me and said, well, Peter, it looks as though our speech was a big success. <laughs> okay, it's our speech now. But then he, then he said, then he said um, that our intelligence services had picked up cable traffic between Moscow and East Berlin, in which Moscow was instructing the East Berlin regime to increase points or increased crossings of the Berlin Wall, and that the president's speech had made the Soviet Union understand the way Peter Rodman put it was what a public relations catastrophe the wall is. All right, I heard that about 48 hours after the president delivered the speech, and nothing for years. I've always wondered, or always wondered, what effect did that speech have? What effect do words ever have is, is one question. But over the years, I've met a number of people who were in East Germany when the president delivered that speech. And they all say something similar. What they say is that when they heard those words, at first it didn't even make sense. The idea of saying, get rid of the Berlin Wall is like saying down is up and up is down. It just didn't even compute. That wall was such a fixed, permanent feature of communist life. But it happened. The president of the United States said, tear down the wall. And what that means is that the day before he delivered that speech, those people couldn't imagine life without that wall. And the day after he delivered that speech, they found themselves wondering, is that wall permanent? What might life be like without it? And so I have come to the conclusion that with Margaret Thatcher and the Pope and Lech Wałęsa in yeah. Poland and Václav Havel in Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. by telling the truth and challenging the Soviet Union, Ronald Reagan helped to make new thoughts thinkable. He enlarged the space for, for moral imagination. And bear in mind what happens, of course, when the Berlin Wall comes down 30 years ago. It's not Gorbachev who tears it down. There are protests that begin in East German churches, that begin in Leipzig, and then they spread very rapidly across East Germany and culminate in a demonstration of over 100,000 people right in the capital of East Berlin, right within sight of the wall itself. And the East German regime goes into a panic emergency meetings of the Politburo, and it's in the middle of the night. They are passing one decree after another, trying to mollify people, settle the situation down. It's in the middle of the night that they pass a decree that has something to do with border crossings. And the member of the Politburo, whose job it is to brief the press, it's something like one in the morning, and he's groggy. 
and he reads this thing and he gets a question, does that mean the border uh, controls are lifted immediately? And he looks at this piece of paper and he said, well, well, yes, they are lifted immediately. And this was broadcast. And within seconds, East Berliners start streaming toward the checkpoints. They go on foot, they go by bicycle. The few who are able to afford cars drive to the checkpoints. The guards at the checkpoints have received absolutely no instructions. This takes everyone by surprise. And of course, there's a tense moment because those guards could shoot these people. And instead, one guard decides to act like a human being and he opens the, 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 uh, the gate. And all the other guards do the same. And at that moment, the Berlin Wall ceases to function. And I like to think that the speech the president delivered not quite two years earlier helped to make that possible, helped to make it possible, in effect, for ordinary German people to get rid of the wall themselves. I just finished reading Evan Thomas's book called Ike's Gamble, and he's writing it from a left-wing point of view where he's basically saying that Eisenhower dithered his way into world peace and, and so on. And it's a very positive look at Eisenhower, but it's a very negative look at the CIA, at the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower spoke of on the way out. And here's, here's the thing, Peter. Evan Thomas makes the case that I've heard many, many times from people on the left, and the case goes something like this. The Cold War was a giant misunderstanding. The Soviets were always far weaker than we were, always. And it's only our military-industrial complex and their, and their love of money and these cowboy, arrogant idiots at the CIA uh, who, are, who are launching these adventures that the whole thing was a giant misunderstanding, mostly caused by our paranoia and fear. And if we'd only listened to uh, sources about how weak the Russians actually were then they would have come to the table as soon as Stalin died in 53, and the whole thing would have been over in a couple years. I fundamentally disagree with that position, but I'd like to get your take on it because it's a common one. And it goes back to what I opened yeah. this conversation yeah. with, the idea that these two teams are like, we're like a Coke and Pepsi. There's just no fundamental difference between the two of them. They're just two big armies, and uh, the whole thing is fundamentally a, a misunderstanding. That view is wrong from beginning to end and top to bottom and inside out. It begins with the notion that after the Second World War, the Soviet Union was so badly destroyed, factory production, agriculture ripped up, one in six dead, all that is true, that all it wanted was a buffer zone behind which to rebuild in peace. Which we had given them. But, which, well, the Red Army, they, they did not need, they could have held free elections in Eastern Europe. And po there could have been ways of choosing to make uh, Poland very, giving Poland no new military. The Soviet Union, the, the, there are two, two explanations for why the Soviet Union did what it did. But first, let's be clear about what it did. It's, it subjected East Europe to four decades of communist control and poverty, impoverishing those, those people, making economic development impossible. It continued as an expansionist power from the beginning, from the end of the Second World War, right through until the Soviet Union finally collapsed itself. It has its navy at the beginning of the period is just a coastal navy. It develops by the 1970s, a deep water fleet capable of projecting Soviet power all over the world. They develop client states in Africa and Asia, they develop a client state in Cuba. This is an aggressive expansionist power. 
They were communist. My friend Stephen Kotkin, who is the brilliant historian, Princeton historian, he's written two volumes, the definitive biography of Stalin. He's now working on the third and final volume. Stephen Kotkin has spent all his professional life in archives studying the inner workings of the Soviet Union. And I said to him once, Stephen, what's, if you could boil it down to one finding, what, what's the most impressive or important finding from all those years of studying documents in the Soviet Union itself? And Stephen replied immediately, they were communists. <laughs> they really believed it. Behind closed doors, when the leaders had nothing to prove to anybody, and you would expect them to be at their most candid with each other, they were still talking about the worldwide revolution and the workers' revolt and speaking in categories of communist ideology. That's one explanation, that they were communist, and they were. The second and complementary explanation is Solzhenitsyn's explanation. He told us this when he sp his famous address at Harvard University. It was at the beginning of the Reagan period. And Solzhenitsyn said the internal dynamic here is that the Soviet Union is a weak and bankrupt country internally. Don't make any mistake, they have a very powerful military, including nuclear weapons. They have to, the regime has to be expansionary because that is the way it, it justifies itself to the Russian people themselves. Look at us. We're standing up to the United States. Look at us. We're projecting Russian power, Soviet power to Africa and Asia. And this was the only legitimacy to the extent that they had any legitimacy at all that they had with their own people. The Berlin Wall fell on November 9th, 1989. 1989, November 9th. And I often, when I mention, talk to college students, I ask, when do you suppose the last person was killed trying to escape over the Berlin Wall. And they'll say, oh, I don't know, maybe sometime in the late 1960s. They have, there's this feeling that somehow or other, the whole, that the, the, the East German regime, the whole Soviet enterprise, the communist enterprise was getting softer and actually they were becoming nicer toward the end. And the answer is that the last person was killed, shot down in cold blood, trying to escape over the Berlin Wall in February of 1989. I've spoken to several people who had been in East Berlin during the, the entire time. And they said that when you went through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin, it was like the beginning of the Wizard of Oz run in reverse. Dorothy comes out of a black and white right. world, opens the door, and there's this burst of brilliant color. And they said that if you went from West Berlin into East Berlin, it was like stepping through a door and all of the color just disappeared. Everything was gray. The people were gray. The clothes were gray. The building was gray. It was so devoid of any kind of sense of, of, of humanity, even. Forget happiness. And yet, I understand that, that people in, in Berlin were a, a very big part of you being able to write that speech. That's right. I, spring of 1987, I received the assignment. The president, I was told... The president is going to stand in front of the Berlin Wall and he'll talk for about half an hour. And given that setting, he ought to talk about foreign policy. That's, that was the guidance I received from the senior staff. I flew in, let me see, I think it was April. April, Yes, April. I flew to West Berlin with the pre-advance party. That is the, <clears throat> there were some people from the White House press office who were going to be liaising with 
German press, people from the Secret Service who would be talking about security arrangements and so forth. And I went there with my notebook and the, spent a day or a day and a half in Berlin. First stop was the site where the president was going to speak, climbed a platform and looked over the wall from West Berlin. And West Berlin was a modern, prosperous town full of color, people well-dressed, driving recent model cars. I was astounded by the number of Mercedes Benzes. Everyone seemed to be doing well. And then you look across the wall down Unter den Linden, which was the main, it was the Pennsylvania Avenue, the main mm -hmm. ceremonial uh, street of old Berlin. And, but now you're looking into East Berlin and it was astonishing. It felt the absence of motion. There were a few soldiers in the near, in the foreground, marching back and forth. You'd look down Unter den Linden and see a few more soldiers, a few people on sidewalks, way off in the distance, a car or two that seemed somehow to be going slowly. And then the second and overwhelming impression was of grayness. Somehow, I, there was no color. The buildings, the buildings seemed, they were gray and brown. They seemed to be slumping. They were clearly badly maintained. You could see shell marks. These many, some of these buildings hadn't been repaired since the end of the Second World War. And this was now 1987, more than four decades later. And so, there I felt, I, I, actually, for me, a young speechwriter who needed material, the first, my impression was that I was really, that <laughs> shook me because I thought to myself, I've never been in a place where you could, the air seemed heavy with the weight of history. This was the border. This was the, the dividing line between the free West, color, movement, activity, people enjoying themselves, and the communist East, all gray, very little activity, very little motion. How do I write something that, how can I give President Reagan material that is equal to the sense of, to the sense of moment in this spot? Well, I talked to various other people. In fact, I talked to the ranking American diplomat in Berlin, and he was full of ideas about what Ronald Reagan should not say. And he said, don't make a big deal out of the wall. They've all become used to it by now. But for me, the, the big moment was that in the evening, I broke away from the American party and got in a cab and drove out to a residential suburb of West Berlin, where a couple of Berliners, we, did, we had never met, but we had friends in common because the Dieter Els was his name. He had had a career at the World Bank in Washington, and he and his wife Ingeborg had just retired back to Germany. So they put together, they brought together uh, a dozen or 15 of their friends, a couple of students. There was a physician, a professor, different walks of life, purely so that I could meet some West Berliners. I'd been talking with officials now. This was a chance to meet some ordinary people. And we talked a little bit about weather in Germany and German wine and so forth. And then I said, look, I was told by the American diplomat here that you've gotten used to the wall by now but I've seen that wall. How, is that true? Are you used to it? And there was a silence. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've committed just the gaffe that the diplomat wanted to make sure the president didn't commit. But then one man raised his arm and pointed. And he said, my sister lives just a few kilometers in that direction. And I haven't seen her in more than 20 years. How do you think we feel about this wall? 
And they went around the room, and every person told a story about the wall. And they hadn't, they'd stopped talking about it, but they hadn't gotten used to it at all. They all hated it every day. And Ingeborg Eltz, lovely woman, I suppose she was in, she just died a couple of years ago. She was charming and kept the conversation light, but at this moment she became angry. And she said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk, glasnost, perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of this wall. And I knew the moment she said that, that if Ronald Reagan had been there, he would have responded to that, to the decency and power and truthfulness of that remark. So that went into my notebook, and that became the basis for the line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I didn't get a chance to talk to the then former president after the wall came down, but I did talk some years later to Mrs. Reagan, and I asked what, what his response was. And she said he was very touched that it wasn't Gorbachev, but it was ordinary Germans. Yeah. Who with their bare took hands. down that wall? And I, I th yes, and I thought it was very appropriate that the the inspiration for that line, for the call to tear down the wall, came from a, a German woman. Peter, thank you so much. That was incredible. By the way, that car you saw moving so slowly was undoubtedly a Trabant, and I'm sure the guy had his foot yes, on the was, floor. Sure. You know, he was he had the he had the accelerator <laughs> mashed to the ground, and all three cylinders of that piece of crap were probably vibrating their little hearts out. <laughs> You've been a friend for a long time, and uh, and I'd love to do this again sometime. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor speaking with you today. Bill, you just holler. I'll come running. Deal. Well, needless to say, it was a great honor talking to Peter Robinson, a man who was actually there and actually made real history. And it's kind of fun to talk about commies as well. If you enjoyed that interview with Peter, there's a lot more to come. Head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to The Cold War, What We Saw. You won't want to miss a thrilling second of it. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.